Good morning. Hi, my name is Stephen. Uh, allow me to add my welcome to the one that uh, was extended before the break. Uh, a few years ago, Andrew Sullivan wrote a really thoughtful article in The New Yorker called, I Used to Be a Human Being. It was about what he termed his distraction sickness. And he begins this article with a story of his checking into a spiritual retreat center for a kind of technology detox. Uh, and, in, and he recounts this, these, this cocktail of emotions that he felt of panic, guilt, and embarrassment when he was asked to turn in his cell phone for the duration of the retreat. And he'd come to this point after uh, what he uh, sensed for a long time was this personal storm and crisis kind of brewing in his life for over a year that stemmed from this constant churn of being immersed in news and hot takes and images and memes and tweets and the constant carousel of deadlines that he would have to produce in order to keep up with what he thought was like a never-ending dialogue with the people that were increasingly living online. Life had become, quote, a cacophonous crowd of words and images, sounds and ideas, emotions and tirades, a wind tunnel of deafening, deadening noise. And I got to tell you, there's not a week that goes by where people don't tell me that this is kind of how they feel on a regular basis. And it's said with a resignation that like, look, although the technological ship has sailed, there's no turning back, but it's all the while they're wondering if this isn't actually, this new way of living isn't actually just a way of dying. The thing is, it isn't actually a new thing in human history. Facing the collapse of the Roman Empire, the church mothers and fathers of the third century recognized the distinction between noise and silence, between just making it through the day and living a life that was actually flourishing. And so they took off into the wilderness to create these refuge in the world from noise and work to remind people who they really are. And they did this not to retreat from the world, but to actually retreat for the world. But you know, if the thoughts of ancient monks seems a little bit too spiritualized or too remote, it was actually the, the same impulse that made David, uh, Henry David Thoreau take off to the woods uh, in 1846 to kind of escape the life that was not life. Only the biggest difference now is that it's hard to find a space that isn't connected. Airplanes, subways, even wilderness trails are increasingly wired to the web. Somebody told me after the last service that Mount Kilimanjaro has uh, installed a cell phone tower to attract more people to come. The data about the amounts of digital noise out there is absolutely staggering. Every minute of every day, users across the planet upload 400 hours of video content to YouTube while Tinder users swipe profiles over a million times. Billions of Facebook posts get liked. Online outlets publish exponentially more than they used to. Twitter, Tumblr, and propaganda outlets then repurpose that material, adding topspin or backspin to fit whatever narrative. Also that we can absorb content that intentionally blurs the line between entertainment and information. And you're guided to these bite-sized nuggets of information by micro-interruption whose names are legion and who hit you with tailored clickbait. So you can flatter yourself that you have free will, but the secondary causes of Silicon Valley algorithms have you hooked like a witless minnow. <laughs> Google knows that you are expecting a child before your mother and your best friend, 
and Google knows how to keep you scrolling. Which is exactly why tech CEOs all around the world are increasingly sending their children to tech-free schools. They see the inherent danger of a ubiquitous social force that is designed to addict and distract because that's where the money is. Now, I allow myself this rant, not because I think that life is better without technology. I, I don't. Jill will tell you that I cannot find anything without Google Maps. She might also tell you that I can't find anything with Google Maps, and that's mean, but it's also true. So no, I don't think that our lives would be better with less technology, but I am convinced they would be far better if we used technology less. Because all of this has profound implications for our apprenticeship to Jesus and the life that he offers to us. This milieu of addiction and distraction is robbing us of the ability to be present. Present to God, present to others, present to all that is good and beautiful and true, present to our own souls. Sullivan sums it up at the end of his article like this. I haven't given up even as each day at various moments I find myself giving in. There are books to be read, landscapes to be walked, friends to be with, life to be fully lived. And I realize that this is in some ways just another tale in the vast book of human frailty. But this new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. And its threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shapeshift under the pressure. The threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget we have any. Kind of a haunting way to end an article, and it has me wondering that what if our distractibility has removed the very stillness in which faith is meant to flourish? So is there something from the life of Jesus that we see that acts as a kind of counterformation to the noise that permeates our lives? Something that will help us set up right in the middle of modern life a way to actually thrive. Well, the good news is there is. As we step back into our journey through Mark's gospel that we started last October, we see yet again how central is this practice of withdrawing from the crowds and the noise, how central that was for Jesus so that he could receive from the Father. And if we are going to be shaped by Jesus and if we're going to practice his way out in the world, then we need to learn how to do the things that he did. And so with that, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to join me in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 32. And friends, listen carefully, for this is God's word. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask that as we come to your word, that we would not just be hearers, but that you would shape our souls and transform our minds. We ask this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, 
Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. At the very beginning of Mark's gospel, there's this story about Jesus' baptism. It's, he comes out of the water, the heavens are torn open, and a voice from the Father says, This is my Son, the Beloved. With Him I am well pleased. It's this great kind of high watermark moment for sure, but it's, it's more than just an emotional or a spiritual high. It is the place from which Jesus is thrust out into ministry. It's the very first thing that Mark records. And then the next line is this one. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was with the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. So the very first thing that Jesus does after receiving this word of blessing from the Father is that he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And in some ways, the wilderness is like a character that pops up again and again in the Gospels. The word for wilderness in the Greek is the word eremos. And it can mean simultaneously uncultivated, unpopulated, desolate, deserted, barren, solitary, lonely. But whatever else it means, it is the place that provides the much-needed quiet, the space away from everything, away from disturbance, away from distraction, so one can be present to themselves and one can be present with God. And you know, I always used to assume that this, this episode of Jesus kind of going out into the wilderness, it, it comes when he is at his most vulnerable, this, this temptation. He's, after 40 days, he is, he's weak, he is hungry, he is lonely. And in that mindset, he is confronted by the three great enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But then a few years ago, I realized all this time, I have been reading this story dead wrong. Ramos, the wilderness. It isn't actually the place of weakness for Jesus. It is the place of his greatest strength. It's the place where he receives from the Father in the quiet, away from everybody else. And after 40 days out in the Eremos, this trio of temptations that come calling at him, they don't stand a chance. And so over and over again, we see Jesus going out into a quiet place, out in nature, out to be alone with God. And so as we jump back into Mark's gospel, where we come at a time in Jesus' ministry when everything is starting to pick up steam. The 12 have gone out on this you know, weeks-long mission trip. They have been preaching. They have been healing. They have been seeing the kingdom of God break into the world. They are both excited and they are tired. And Mark notes that between the crowds and the disciples that were pressing in, there were so many people coming and going. The, the scene is so frantic, it's so full of noise and hurrying and doing that they don't even have time to eat. Anyone ever feel like that? You're like, dude, we're three weeks into the school year. I haven't slept since July. I kind of want to punch you right now. And to all that, Jesus says, come away with me by yourselves, out to a quiet place and get some rest. And it's as if he's saying to the disciples, you know, what you think you might need is some good old-fashioned quality me time, right? Where, you know, you can chill at home and crack open a glass of wine or whatever, watch the Braves, read a book while you can fold laundry, do whatever it is that you do to relax. 
But you don't need that. What you actually need is time alone in the quiet with me. Get away from the noise. Get away from the people and just be with me. The first part of discipleship to Jesus is simply just being with Jesus. So, verse 32. They went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. There's that word again, eremos. But, you know, things don't go as planned. It's the, the next verses. People beat him to the spot. There's a large crowd already. They've assembled. They've got all kinds of needs. And that's exactly how it is with us, right? I mean, there's a realism to this story that I love. Like, we, what we really need is time to be alone with Jesus. But then life happens. People with needs happen. You set the time aside, but then a child needs you to use that engineering background that you have to punch, you know, a, a, a hole open in the Capri Sun top with a straw. Or you get set to go out. You carve out the time and the space to be present with God, only to get hit with a text from your boss that you quickly respond to and then find yourself lost into the vacuum 90 minutes later. And all you can remember is that funny and kind of cute video that you saw of a puppy falling down the stairs. He's fine. It's okay. Or you grab your water bottle uh, to go out and, and hit the trail. And you get a phone call from a friend who you need to talk to about a broken relationship in the midst of all of her tears. You're trying to prioritize time away with Jesus, but life gets in the way. Well, you're in good company. This, this was Jesus' life. At peak exhaustion, Jesus pulls away from everything with the disciples only to have thousands of people gather out in the desert in a kind of makeshift Coachella to try to hear from him all that is going to happen about the, the launch of the revolution of God's kingdom. Oh, and they forgot to bring lunch. But then after all that, after everything is said and done, Jesus dismisses the crowd and what does he do next? He goes out into the desert on a mountain by himself to pray. So it's fair to, to say that as you read through the Gospels, the busier and the more distracted and the more in demand Jesus gets, the more often Jesus pulls away from everything in silence and in solitude. And we tend to work the exact opposite direction from that. When things get busy, when needs and when demands multiply, the first thing to go is the quiet rather than it being the place that we go to. We lose the unforced rhythms of grace, as Eugene Peterson put it, that time to sit still, unhurried with Jesus, that time to, to pray, to, to simply be still, to take an inventory of our heart, to let our souls catch up with our bodies. The greater demands of our time, the greater we have a demand to be with Jesus. And so taking a cue from this morning's scripture, I want to say just a few things about the practice of silence and solitude. And some of you might be thinking like, well, haven't we talked about silence and solitude a couple times already? And all I can say is, look, we are going through Mark verse by verse. We are not skipping over the familiar or the, the really strange parts. And so if it keeps coming up in the gospels, chances are that is an indication that the gospel is trying to tell you to pay attention Jesus needed time in the quiet place, so you probably do too. So just a quick word on each. First, silence. I love Adele Calhoun's definition 
Uh, Silence is, she writes, to free myself from the addiction to and the distraction of noise so I can totally be present to the Lord, to open myself to God in the place beyond words. And I think the tricky thing about silence is that it's not simply about eliminating external noise from our life. I mean, that's, that's the part, you know, where it's the, the music in your AirPods, the, the ambient sound of the TV or the kids playing downstairs or, or your favorite podcast that seems to always be on. So on one level, the silence, yes, it is literal. You get, get away in nature, get away in a room that is quiet where your ears are having to adjust to the sound of quiet and the distractions start to get slipped away. That is a practice in and of itself. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of spending a week at the Outer Banks. Uh, We were with Jill's family um, and our family together. It was a great time. But some of the the best moments that I had were just out on the ocean with a surfboard. And I'm not good at surfing by any stretch. Like, I don't want you to think that I'm cooler than I really am. (laughs) But it didn't matter. I mean, just sitting out there half the time in the quiet with the, the sun and the breeze and that space, you know, waiting for a set to come in where you can just take inventory of the architecture of creation. Well, after about 20 minutes of that, I began to feel my soul wake up. And, and I wasn't reading my Bible. I wasn't doing anything like overtly spiritual in nature. I was just doing something that put me in a place where I had undistracted time with God, being present to myself and being present to God. And there's something that happens on the neurobiological level when we're in a play where the external noise is stripped away. It creates the conditions in which it's harder it creates the conditions where where we can actually get to the spot where the internal noise starts to get a lot quieter. There's this uh, space in the Orfield Laboratories in Minneapolis, and it has the distinction of being the quietest room in the world. It's an anechoic chamber where the resting volume is negative 9.6 decibels. Super quiet. And it's smaller than a newborn's nursery. It took about two years and a team of engineers to to complete this place. It's so quiet in this room that you can actually hear the grinding of your bones when you walk inside. You can hear blood flowing in your veins. You can hear your skin sliding over your muscles, your, your tendons creak, your organs churning. You sit in this space for 30 minutes. You start to hallucinate from the quiet. At 45 minutes, which is the longest anyone has ever been able to sit in there, you start to go a little bit crazy. Some have called this the room where sound goes to die. That sounds like a horror movie, right? It is an answer to the age-old question posed by the great theologian Alanis Morissette. Why are you so petrified of silence? Well, that's why. But when I I read about this, it seemed like this apt metaphor for modern life. When we get quiet enough, we can actually hear ourselves. And NASA started actually recently training astronauts in this room so that they could deal with the vast vacuum that is space, where there is no sound. For most of us, the internal noise that we encounter all the time feels just like a bunch of sound bouncing off the echo chamber of our brain. 
And so when we come to quiet, it's not like we automatically enter into this Zen state, right? It, it's, it's our mind is all over the place. It's this, this place where anxiety and worry and fear just kind of just tumbles all around. This, this mental chatter that never lets up. The running commentary in our head about the lousy conversation that we had at work. The, the wild thoughts that escape every time that girl or that guy pops up on our Instagram feed, the revenge fantasies that we build up about, well, the next time that person says this or that or the other thing, I'm going to hit them with this thing. The worry that chips away at our soul about all the things that could happen or the idealizing that we do that keeps us from actually, you know, being less present in the place where God actually has us living in the moment. We need to train to enter into silence. And so it's this way of intentionally entering stillness, not just to quiet the external environment outside of our body. That is often the easier part. Easy in theory, difficult to do in practice. But that's the part where we just turn off our devices. We power down our laptop. We go to a park and we don't take our AirPods with us. Go to a monastery, easy stuff. But more importantly and much harder is quieting the internal environment of our mind. I mean, that place is like a wild animal in need of taming. But it's only in that space where we're present to ourselves, where we can inventory the habits of our heart, where more importantly, we can be present to God. That is what Jesus is inviting his disciples to when he's inviting them to come away with him. It's both. It's not just an invitation into silence, though. It is an invitation into solitude. And again, Adele Calhoun has this great definition. She writes, solitude is to leave people behind and enter time alone with God. Easy enough to grasp in concept. But to be clear, when Jesus tells his disciples to come away with them, he's not talking about isolation, You see, solitude is very different from isolation. Let me see if I can explain. Solitude is a way to engage, but isolation is a way that we escape. Solitude is safety. Isolation is danger. Solitude is about being open to God, whereas isolation is a place where we are vulnerable to temptation. Solitude is communion with God. Isolation is just self-directed loneliness. Solitude is about tending to your soul. But isolation is what you crave when you forget that you even have one. And it turns out that in solitude, we are anything but alone. Notice in verse 31, Jesus tells them, go away by yourselves. But he gives them an invitation, come with me. It's a small, but it's this important detail that when Jesus tells his disciples to come to him and, and, and when they start telling him about all the amazing things that they're doing, about the, the demons that they've cast out, about the healings that they've done in his name, the, this sense that everything is kind of on the rise, that they're going to see the kingdom of God come in their lifetime. But the, the story of their sending and their success is sandwiched in between their going out on mission and John the Baptist being beheaded. It's as if Jesus is telling them, look, yeah, things are going really well right now, and that's good. But what about when all the excitement and the crowds are gone? What about, what about that time when you are no longer exciting and popular, and, and actually you start to make people mad? Well, in that time, you're going to lose sight of who you are. 
And you're going to need to know how to hear the voice of the one who reminds you who you are. We all need that space to come to the place of stillness, to hear the one who refuses to define us by our accomplishments and our abilities, but who also does not withhold his voice from us because of our hang-ups and our failures and all of our vices, but the one who speaks freely to us out of his grace. And one of the biggest things that I worry about in the, the spirituality of our day is that a good number of people don't even recognize that they feel alienated from God. Or they, they don't have the, 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 or they don't feel safe enough to admit that. And so they live off of other people's spirituality, one, you know, by a, a podcast or a book or, or whatever it is, and they begin to feel the sense of disconnection from themselves, and they lose sight of their calling. They're not experiencing God's presence throughout the day. And in a culture that has us bouncing from thing to thing to thing, it is no surprise that the level of outrage and anxiety and hostility in the public space seems to be rising with the death of the quiet space. Because all these things are symptomatic of not taking enough time to be alone with ourselves and with God. I mean, we are seeing in real time that the opposite of a contemplative life is not an active life, but a reactive life. One that gets sucked into the tyranny of the urgent rather than what is truly important. But friends, there's an alternative. And it comes when we think and feel and process our soul before God. To take your time, I mean, maybe not like a whole hour but just enough time to decompress from the noise and the traffic and the tweets and the haptics of modern life. And you start to come back to the present and you start to feel again. And usually it's the lousy emotions that you feel first. That's just how it goes. You feel the good, the bad, and the ugly in your own hearts. You feel your, your hopes and your joys and your, your fears and your desires. You feel your longing for God and your distinct lack of longing for God. You feel your euphoria at His presence and the pain of His absence. You, you feel all of the lies that you believe and the truth that will set you free. You feel all the things that animate your actions, the distractions that you crave, the coping mechanisms that you use as a crutch just to make it through the day. And all of that stuff begins to come up to the surface so that you can deal with the stuff that's down beneath the surface and hear God's grace speak over all of it. And we need that because it's only when we know who we are that we have any chance of knowing what we are supposed to do. You see, silence and solitude, they aren't just about pulling away from the world. They are the means by which we can actually truly engage with it. One of my heroes is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a pastor and a theologian who was instrumental in the German church's opposition to Hitler. And just before the war, he was offered a teaching spot in the United States. He was actually stripped of his ability to teach inside of Germany because of his anti-Nazi views. And other members of the Confessing Church uh, were starting to get arrested and were starting to feel the, the heavy weight of the Gestapo and persecution. And so he came out and he took this invitation to come to New York to lecture. But then one night, he was just torn up tormented by the reality that he was there in safety while, while his brothers and sisters were back in Germany. They were suffering. 
And he was anguished, he was, he was afraid, he was frustrated. People were looking to him for leadership, but he was already so tired. And so he began to pray. And he just began to pour himself out until his soul came to this place of quiet and he heard as clear as day a conviction that it was time for him to go back. And so after just one month, he took one of the last boats across the Atlantic to go back into Germany. And as I was thinking about this story, about this profound sense of anguish and, and the disappointment that he felt, I, I, just, I couldn't help but, but wonder, like, what if he had an iPhone? And what if just like instead of that time of turning to pray, he just turned to the next biggest thing that he could distract himself with? What, what if instead of the, you know, sitting there in the relative safety of the, the world on fire, facing all the discouragement and all that, I mean, I mean, what would you do? What would I do? It's just an easy escape to turn to whatever sort of distraction and device instead of turning toward God and letting God sift through all of those broken pieces. But because his life had been so shaped by these times of quiet with his own soul, with God, he retreated, but only so he could go back and engage more deeply than he had before. And within months, he was running an illegal underground seminary, training students for the confessing church, having them read theology and the Bible in the daytime, but also having them engage in morning prayer and in times of intense silence and solitude. And when he got criticized for these unorthodox methods of teaching, he said, I'm doing this because the formation that happens in here needs to be stronger than the formation that happens out there. And it's no different with us. We enter into the presence of God not to retreat from the world, but so that we can actually engage with it. We pull away so we can go in. For Jesus, after this brief respite on the boat with his disciples. He sees the crowd gathered and he is moved with compassion for them. Compassion is the fruit that comes out of this time of solitude. Every time Jesus returns from the mountain, from the Eremos, from the wilderness, in these times of silence and solitude, he returns ready to give his life for the sake of other people. And so yeah, what if what the world needs from us most is simply a community of people who are emotionally alive and spiritually awake, who are present, who are kind, and who presents to the world an alternative to the chaos of the over-busy, digitally distracted, and noisy urban world? What if all it needs most is a people who can carry the Eremos with them, wherever they go.